You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I was in Atlanta on Tuesday, and it's a rhythm that I've had a lot since we launched the church, where I'll go on the very first flight out. So I'm getting up in the fours, flying out at six, and then I'll get on the last flight back. And so it typically turns into like a 20-hour day of meetings in Atlanta. But you bang them all out, get home, and that then spend two days recovering. But uh, I decided this time, let's go, got up at the fours, like maybe many of you do, because it's D.C., and so flew out to Atlanta. But then I realized I ended all my meetings early. And I thought at that moment, with all these flights, I got status. And the way flight status works, you can change your flight the day of. And I was like, I've never really used this status, but you know what? Say my name, folks. Things are about to change today. I'm going to bump up to an earlier flight and get to see my children. So I was feeling pretty good about that. Showed up at the airport, kind of had a little swagger walking in like, okay, my name's Ben Stewart. I went on an earlier flight. And she was like, well, okay, yes, sir. And put me on the earlier flight. I was like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to see the kids. I got all amped about that. I was excited. I'm going to see my children. And then I'm going to sleep because I'd only slept for four hours the night before. And I was deliriously exhausted. And so I showed up at my flight getting ready to get on, realized that my seat got moved from an ideal position to a far less ideal seat. But I was like, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm still getting home early. And as I sat down, she was like, hey, everybody, uh, there's been some technical difficulties with this plane. We're going to have to wait a little bit. It might be around an hour or so. We don't really know. And I was like, all right. Well, I went back up to her and I was like, hey, my name's Status. I mean, Stuart. Look it up. Uh, can I just get back on my old flight? And she was like, oh, no, no, we gave that away. And it's uh, waitlisted, like you're not getting on that flight. I'm like, all right. Well, okay, so maybe this flight will take off the same time as that other flight, no big deal. Okay, so I sit back down. And then as the time comes with the other flights boarding, she makes an announcement. Hey, so it's going to be another maybe two and a half hours. And she's like, but just to let you know, all the other planes are oversold and every plane that's not oversold, we lit on fire and we burned all the bridges in this city. So you're trapped in Atlanta for maybe forever. So go and try to scrounge some hope and meaning this holiday season, okay? Turn it off and I'm like, no! And I remember in that moment, you know, I'm like, Four hours of sleep, Ben gets a little volatile. And I was just like, all right, like, what am I gonna do? Go yell at her? She can't do anything. Gonna complain to these people? They can't do anything. And I'm so exhausted, but you know, it's those little, they put those bars so you can't sleep on the bench, you know? So you just have to sit there and be exhausted. And I remember sitting there just like, I'm trapped. I have no options. I can't get out. And so I was like, I'm not gonna take this out on anybody except God, because I know him. And so I just took a walk to the airport with God. And I was like, Lord, I believe you're sovereign over my life. Why, God, why have you made it so? You ever felt that way? Not just at the airport, although I imagine all of us maybe have been in a situation like that, but you're like, God, why are you making it work this way? Why is my life looking like this? And it's particularly frustrating when you have expectations that turn into frustrations. That's the worst. I had a little hope and then I watched you dash them. Why is it like this? My plan was a good plan. Why are you messing with it? God, have you ever experienced that? Where you're like, you know what? God, what are you doing with my life? What are you doing with the direction of my life? Why is it working out this way? 
And I'm telling a joking story about an airport, but some of us, we feel that really deeply in other places. You're like, hey, man, like bodies are supposed to be healthy. So why am I still sick? Or some of us are like, man, I should be married by now. Why am I not? Or hey, my career should be further along at this point. Why am I still in this space? And we look at God and say, God, why is it like this? And we don't want to accuse him of evil, but we just go, but maybe he's inefficient. <laughs> like, give me the wheel and I could get us there quicker. Why are you making it this way? And let me just tell you, I think about this every Christmas, by the way. So Merry Christmas to you. I think like this all the time. Every time I read the nativity stories, I think about this situation. I think about Joseph. And I just imagine the desperation of a husband with a pregnant woman knocking on door to door and no one will let him in. And how many doors till he just started to blow up inside? Like, what's going on? You sent an angel to Mary. You sent an angel to Zacharias. You sent a whole host of them to shepherds. Could you dispatch one to an innkeeper? Just one and tell that guy, hey man, she's great with child. You move, you sleep in the barn, let her sleep in there. And at Joseph, at what point of that desperation as a provider is he saying, God, why won't you break through here? Give us a place to sleep. Or Mary, how many bumps on that donkey ride before she was like, all right, so I can get supernaturally impregnated, but I can't get supernaturally expedited to Bethlehem. We got to go by donkey. Like, like what does a girl have to do to get medallion status to get to Bethlehem? Like at what point do you go, God, what are you doing? Why are you making it like this? And let me tell you something. I remember as a young man, I was in my twenties and I remember riding in the car with my dad it's the first spiritual conversation I ever remember having with him. He was in a very hard season where a lot of health problems had led to the loss of his job. And all this difficulty was crashing in on my father. And I remember him asking me at one point, he just said, do you think there's some plan to all this? Or is stuff just happening? And he wasn't just asking about his life. He was asking about life. Is there some purpose to all this? Or are we just bouncing around on this earth trying to eke out some joy. Why is it like this? Is there logic to the timing? And is there purpose in the pain? And in the middle of that, Mary and Joseph, we watch him ride into Jerusalem to go to the temple. And in that moment, they're offering the offering you're supposed to when a kid's born, and they're poor. So we didn't read it, but they offer the poor offering of two birds. And while they're in that moment, this old man walks up and he scoops up that little baby and he starts to praise God. And he says, sovereign Lord, as you promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. See, this guy has clarity in the middle of the chaos. And his perspective brings him peace. I will depart in peace. Why? Because I've seen. I see what you're doing, God. I see what you're doing among the nations. And when I get perspective, I have peace. And that's true of all of us. You know this. If you ever tried driving without ways on in the city and you're like, where am I? Just there's buildings and there's people and it's chaos and who drives like, and it's overwhelming. What do you have to do? You have to zoom out. 
You go, that's where I am in the city. That's how these things relate. That's the road I need to be on. And when you zoom out of your story and get perspective, that can give you peace in the middle of your story. So here's the thing. I'm not going to get into the specifics of your story. I don't know them anyway. But what I want to do this morning is to give you perspective on God's priorities. Because it's his priorities that have shaped his story and yours and mine. So if we can know his priorities, we can have peace. He gives us perspective. Do you see it? And if we can understand why he did it this way with Jesus's life, we can understand why he's moving some of the pieces in your life. Do you see it? But to do that, and here's where we're going this week. Basically, I want to talk about uh, the why of the win. Why did he do it this way? And not just the win of Mary and Joseph, but let's back it up. Not just why did he make their lives complicated, Why make it all complicated? Why have Genesis be where everything goes wrong and then wait 2,000 years before sending the one who's going to make it right? Why make Abraham back in Genesis have to journey all across the world to get to this moment? Why the Exodus? Why all this difficulty? Why Roman occupation? Why have your people enslaved? Why the complexity of this story? Couldn't it have happened an easier way? And I think if we understand God's plan, it'll give us peace in the middle of our story. Do you see it? But to understand the why of the when, we need to know the who and the where. And to do that, we need about a 4,000-year head start on our life, right? So let's do that real quick, okay? Adam and Eve. In the book of Genesis, God creates humanity, and it's beautiful in Genesis 1 and 2, and then mankind goes astray. We break faith with God, and God in mourning tells us everything breaks now because of you. And yet in the midst of the tragedy of the brokenness of the world, you see the first family splinter. God gives them hope. And in Genesis 3.15, he issues what theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first annunciation of good news. He said, I will send the seed of a woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. A boy is coming from the woman who will crush the one who hurt you. Eve has a son named Cain and Cain means I got one. I got a boy. But then she has another boy and she names him Vanity. And some scholars think it's because she was like, I got a boy. Nope, nope, he's not the rescuer. These kids are a mess, right? And her boys were a mess. But you see generations down, Noah is born and his dad calls him Noah, which means rest. And he says, perhaps my boy will give us rest from the curse of the ground. Maybe he's the son who will set things right again. And Noah was not. And yet it's fascinating as you look through Genesis, you see the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2. You see evil in Genesis 3 enter into our story. You see the proliferation of it in 4 and 5. And then you see judgment in Genesis 6 through 9 as God floods the world to judge evil. You see humanity repopulate, but they are still going astray. And so God scatters them. And all of that creation, fall, sin, nations, stories, happens in 12 chapters. And then from Genesis 12 to 50, the scope narrows onto one man. And God narrows the scope on Abraham. And he tells this man in Genesis 12, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was 75 years old, but he trusts God and he moves. In about 2091 BC, Abraham moves to the 
to Canaan. I think we got a map of it. Do we have Abraham's movement up here somewhere? Maybe? No? Yeah. Okay. This is the region we're talking about. Abraham's going to journey to this little strip of land on the left over here. He was over here. So this journey he's going to take, he's going to kind of go on this loop. See? And you see how he's kind of taking a curve? That's because if he tried to go straight, see that kind of brownish part in the middle? That's a desert. Uh, so people die out there. Can't go straight. So you got to go on a loop. Uh, we call that the fertile crescent. You remember that from, from uh, social studies class? <laughs> fertile crescent. So he walks along the crescent and he lands in this land God wants him in. Now, when he gets there at 100 years old, he finally has that child. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob, after a life-changing encounter with God, has his name changed to, uh, to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Now, 10 of those boys don't like one of their brothers, which happens. So they sell him into slavery in Egypt, which happens. <laughs> they sell little Joe into Egypt, and then what happens? Joseph trusts God even in the midst of prison. And as he trusts God, God provides for Joseph. Meanwhile, there's a famine in this land, and so these boys have to journey southward to try to survive in the womb of Egypt. Right around the time that young Joseph, who's trusted God, rises from the prison to second in command over all of Egypt. And there with that power, he forgives his brother because he says, God guides my steps, not you, and he provides for his family. And there in the womb of Egypt, these 12 sons become 12 families. Those families become 12 tribes the 12 tribes of Israel, the Israelites. And there they grow into a mighty nation, which the nation of Egypt looks at them and says, what do we do with these guys? Let's enslave them. This whole kind of population that's going in our midst, they use them as forced labor. And so God raises up another hero, Moses, and Moses trusts God, obeys him, and Moses leads the people mightily out of Egypt, through the desert, into this piece of property. And he leads them into, all through the book of Exodus, what's called the promised land. Promised to Abraham. And so he leads them up to the edge of that land. And then about 1300 BC, Joshua, his protege, leads them into the land. There's difficulty under the leadership of the judges. So from about 1030 or 1050 BC to 930, you see the United Kingdom arise. That you see King Saul as their king. Then the great King David becomes the king of Israel in this region. And then his son Solomon takes over and it reaches the height of its glory. After Solomon, the kingdom splits into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom persistently rebels against God. And the prophets warn them over and over again to repent, and they do not. And so in 721 BC, the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom. They're gone. The southern kingdom of Judah persists in disobedience, and yet God continues to work on them. But he's warning them through the prophets. They continue to disobey. So in 586 BC, Babylon comes all the way across where Abraham did, conquers them, and then takes them back. And you see God says, I will take you back to square one. And they go back to Babylon. And that's where you get books like Daniel and uh, Esther, the people of God surviving in a pagan land. And then in 539 BC, Cyrus of Persia destroys Babylon. And when he takes over, he looks at these Israelite people and he says, you can go, go home. And they leave and go home. And we have books in our Bible like Ezra and Nehemiah of the people making Abraham's journey again, settling into that land, building walls, building temple, building a city. And the Old Testament, the curtains close with the people of God back on this property that through the entire Old Testament, God seems to be very concerned with. Then our history books start. Around 300 BC, 
There's a guy named Philip who leads the kingdom of Macedonia, way over to the west over here. Philip's got a little boy named Alex. He gets his boy a tutor named Aristotle who teaches him military arts and philosophy. When Philip dies, young Alex takes over the kingdom at age 20. And then over the next 12 years, Alex, who we know is Alexander the Great, conquers the entire known world and then promptly dies at age 32. Gets to the end, I'm the king of the world. Oh, and he's dead. But not before he accomplishes one thing. He brings Greek culture to the entire known world in something we call Hellenization. Do you remember that class? Hellenization, right? Teaching them about the Hellas, about Greek. And Greek culture, that's fine, but something critical happens under him that really hadn't happened in human history before. Suddenly, all these nations, all these people are taught one language, Greek. That throughout all these tribes and nations, suddenly there's the ability to communicate. Alex dies, doesn't have a leader that can take over the whole thing from him, so his kingdom splits into four different generals, none of which are as adept at leadership, but it doesn't really matter because a new power is rising in the West, and in 63 BC, Rome begins to conquer the entire known world, including this promised land. In 27 BC, the Caesar consolidates power, and he issues a time of peace that they bring relative stability to the land. No more wars among these cultures. And so there's a time of peace in Rome. We call it the Pax Romana. Do you remember that class? Pax you didn't think you were going back to social studies. The Pax Romana, time of peace. And suddenly what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. The world suddenly gets very small. That now suddenly, with all of us led by a common government, imperfectly, and yet there it is, that gives us the freedom to travel. You don't travel when you know robbers are going to kill you. So suddenly you go, man, I can travel to these different parts of the world and I can engage in trade. I can bring my goods. They, theirs, we share. We have a business. We make a profit. This does good for us. And they could do that specifically because Rome was famous for something. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, their roads. You've heard all roads lead to Rome. Many of their roads still exist today. I remember when I went to Rome with my wife. I wanted to see one of the famous roads that I knew the apostles had walked upon. And I thought it would be like some lonely rocks on a hillside. There were like 18 wheelers going by it. I was like, flee, flee the Austrian way. I'm like walking down a freeway. But I'm like, man, these Roman roads are still there. And so suddenly a network of roads breaks out across all these people. And so they can travel, they can trade, and they can do it because they speak one language. And so suddenly the world shrinks that a common government leads a time of stability where people can move, they can communicate, and they can travel, and they speak the same language. Here's where this little piece of land gets interesting. It's only 10,000 square miles. But there's something true of that little strip of green that's not true of any other piece of land on the globe. That is the one place that's the connection of three major continents. So you could travel by boat, but back then you didn't cross out in the open seas. You would typically die that way. You bounce along the coastline. So if you want to get anywhere, you're going to bounce along that coastline. You don't travel to the right because as we looked at earlier, that's a desert. People die out there. So if you want to move from west to east, you're journeying through that little area. And it's at this time, in this place, at this moment of history, on this little piece of land, that God has been very concerned to plant his monotheistic people in, that God comes to a little teenage girl. 
says, I know you got plans for your wedding. I'm going to blow all that up because you're going to be pregnant, even though you've never slept with anybody. And that's going to cause some difficulty in your life. But let me tell you, go ahead and name the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Name him Jesus, the Lord saves. Because as Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God orchestrates all of history for this moment. And Jesus never leaves that little area. Journeys among it doing miracles like no one's ever seen. Speaks with an authority people hadn't heard before. Has all this religious power yet is gentle with children and kind and gracious to those who had broken every law of God's. He was the perfect man. And in the midst of that, about midway through his ministry, Luke tells us he turns and he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem that the prophet Ezekiel called, oh, Jerusalem at the center of the nations. Literally, he calls it the belly button of the nations with countries all around her. God put his holy city, the city of peace, in the center of all the nations. And at the right moment, he sent the prince of peace into Jerusalem, the city of peace, to purchase our peace with his life. And so Paul told the Romans in Romans 5, do you see it? At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Is there a plan in God's purposes? Yes, there is. And he will move all of human history to accomplish it. Why did Jesus come? Salvation, to rescue you and rescue me. Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you can now dismiss me in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. That's who Jesus is. He came to save you and me, not to give you a pump-up speech, not to give you some moral philosophy, not to give you the opportunity to turn over a new leaf. Romans says at just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, we weren't just a little misadjusted. We weren't just a little ill. We were dead and powerless in sin. And so Jesus took on all of our sin so we could be made right with God. Why did he come? It's for salvation. Why this timing? For proclamation. Did you notice what Simeon called it? My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, the ethnos, to the nations, and for the glory of your people, Israel. Is there a logic to God's timing? Yes, Christ came for our salvation. He came when he did for its proclamation. Because if you're going to come to bring someone to yourself, you're going to make sure they get the message. So I remember I had a friend when I was in college ask a girl on a date party. And it was at a time in college, I don't know if it's still like this, where there was always a lot of pressure to ask a girl on a date. It wasn't just like, would you like to get some coffee? Like there was performance involved. <laughs> so he wanted to invite her to this date party. And uh, so she drove a bus uh, for the school. Uh, it was a large campus, and so there were buses that would run all through it. So he went and learned her bus route and what day she would be driving and what path the bus would go on. And then he marshaled his forces so that on a given day, 
as she was driving along her bus route, she showed up at the first stop, and as people were loading on the bus, there's a guy standing there, and he's just holding a poster board with her name on it. And she's like, shh, can I help you? Are you getting on? No? Why do you have my name? Why do you have my name? Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, all right. Bye. Shh. Mm, drove on. Goes to the next bus stop. Some people get on. Some people get off. There's another guy holding a sign that says, will you? She's like, okay. Drives to the next stop. People are getting off. People are getting on. Another guy's holding a sign. Go with me. At this point, people are getting on. Nobody's getting off. Everybody's like, we're on this ride. And they start going together to this date at such and such a time. On and on, these little signs envelop this story so that at the end of it, there was so much expectation on that bus, so much thrill at the possibility of hope that when they showed up at that last one, he's standing there with flowers and candy and here I am, a celebration erupts. <laughs> you moved a whole bus route to come for me. What a man. <laughs> and God moves all of human history for you and for me. And there's not a moment wasted. Why so much time in the Old Testament under the law? To show you when you try to be perfect, you can't. Read the Old Testament and it's so depressing. We just can't rise to our potential. And Paul told us, yeah, because the Old Testament is a tutor. It's literally an old man that's meant to grab your hand and lead you to Christ. You even see when they were in exile and their temple was destroyed. How do you worship when your temple's gone? You build little synagogues where you gather together to look at the word of God together. That was the B plan in their mind when we have no temple. But when Jesus shows up and after Jesus dies, suddenly through the entire known world, there are little synagogues dotting all of Rome. And so when Paul, who's probably in his 20s, hears the message of Jesus and believes Jesus died in the AD 30s, by the end of Paul's life in the 60s, he had gone from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue that were scattered throughout the entire known world. And you see that by 60 AD, the gospel had gone as far west as Spain and as far east as India. When God moves history for salvation, he's going to make sure that message gets heard. That I'll move all of history so that in less than half a lifetime of a man, the gospel was spread farther than the Macedonian empire or Roman one ever did. And God moved all of history so that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. And on nations around the globe, people know God has come for you. He's moved history for you. He wants you. And this is love. Not that you loved him, but he loved us and gave his life that we might be right with God. Why did he come for your salvation? Why the timing for proclamation? I want you to know, and I will move whatever I have to move for you to know it. Why the inconvenience? Why the donkey ride? Galatians 4 says it this way. When the fullness of time had come. Isn't that such a pregnant little statement? When the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. He's going to come just like you and me. Born under the law with all the expectations of people who are trying to be holy so that he might redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came to take on all of that we have so he could redeem all of us. He took on all of it. 
so you can never look at a difficulty in your life and say, God, you don't understand me. No, he does understand because he had been there. And every inconvenience of the incarnation was for our redemption. Do you know that? Every single one. And you look at his life and you say, he was tempted like Adam. He was homeless like Abraham. He wandered the desert like Moses. He suffered like those who were in exile. He was betrayed like King David. And he was dropped into the depths for three days like Jonah. But when he was tempted, he resisted. When he was homeless, his faith didn't waver. When he was forced to wander, he did not complain. When he was betrayed, he did not revile back. And when he suffered, he did not open his mouth. And when he was buried, he rose again. Poor because many of us were poor. Weak because we were weak. Betrayed because we know the sting of betrayal. He took it all on. He took on all of our story so he could take on all of us. Every inconvenience of his incarnation was for our redemption. Do you see it? So how does this relate to you at the airport? His major priority for you is salvation. And I don't know all the particularities of your story, but I do know this, proclamation matters to him. So in the car with my dad, I remember in that moment, I, we had just never had a spiritual conversation. And when he asked this question, I was a kid and I thought, I don't have the right words. And I remember in that moment praying, God help me give a good answer to my dad. And I remember exactly what I said to him. I said, Dad, I believe God wants everyone to know him. So he will give you whatever he needs to give you. And he will take from you whatever he must take from you to get your attention because he wants you. And I remember my dad got real quiet. And then after a while, shook his head and said, it's a good answer. I got it from the Apostle Paul. Paul was in a metropolitan city looking at a group of faces like I am. And he said, God has determined the exact times and exact places that you live. If perhaps you might seek him and find him because he's not far from you. Some of you came here to take over the world. And that may or may not be working out for you. But God brought you here to bring heaven to you. That's why you're here. And he will give to you what he must give. And he will take what he must take to get our attention. Because more than you need anything else in this life, you need him. So I tried to sleep in the airport. It didn't go good. And my phone rang. And long story short, it was an answer I didn't recognize, which typically means there's no way I'm answering it. But I thought it was maybe somebody I might have. It doesn't matter. So I answer the phone and I never do this. And this guy's like, hey. And he says his name. And he's like, I got your phone number from so-and-so. They said I could call you. And I was like, oh, man. Not only am I brutally exhausted and about to lose my mind, now I'm getting a rando phone call because someone gave my number out like, Lord, help me. And I was like, you know what, man? Get over yourself. You're a pastor. Here's this guy talking on the phone. And I'm like, yeah, man, what's going on? And he was like, hey, uh, so-and-so gave me your number and said I should reach out to you. And I'm like, yeah. And so we start talking. And I don't want to tell this whole story, but brilliant guy, Ivy League educated, 
realized something's missing in his life, listens to a seminar on how the brain works. And in the middle of the seminar, the scientist says, conscience, we still don't know what that's about. But I guarantee you, you follow it, and it'll lead you places that you won't even dream as possible. And he said, that video freaked me out. He said, because here's one of the brightest minds on how the mind works, and he says, a critical function of it, we have no idea how it works. And he said, and so I believed there might be a God. And I thought that I'm just going to obey my conscience. He said, and so my conscience led me to a church and I went to church and I met, and he named these guys he met who were dear friends of mine, and they journeyed with him for about a year, introduced him to Jesus, baptized him, he put his faith in Christ. And he said, and then it's the weirdest thing, I, th I think I'm supposed to move to D.C. and I don't know why. I'm like, well, I got plenty of reasons. <laughs> and I start talking about what's happening at this church, and he was, and then I start talking about what our needs are. And then he just says on the phone, I got chills, man, because this is all stuff I've been praying about and feel like God's been putting on me and I just didn't even know why. And look, I don't know what the end of his story is going to be. I don't know where he's going in life. But I know for me, I wouldn't answer that call if I was on a plane. I wouldn't answer that call if I was sitting in my house. I wouldn't have answered that call in probably any other circumstance I can imagine. <laughs> other than being stuck for two and a half hours with no plan and almost unintelligibly hitting yes. <laughs> and I don't know all the reasons why I was there, and I don't know all the reasons why you are where you are. But I do know you are beautiful because you're made in the image of God, every single one of you. And we are all broken because of sin. And God in his mercy sent the seed of a woman to crush that serpent's head, the son of God to make us sons and daughters of God by his grace, to live the perfect life we could not so that we could be made whole. And he moved all of history so that you could sit here in the Howard Theater and know that. And so my hope for you is you'd know him. And when you do, even if you don't know all the particularities, you know his priorities. And you can be Simeon going, all I knew was I was going to see him. And so I see him and I have peace. I got to be a part of what God is doing to declare his glory to the nations. That's a good story. It's interesting with Mary, we were joking about her complaining. She doesn't complain at all. When an angel comes to her and is like, wedding plans, devastated, pregnancy, it's going to get weird. Social outcast, pretty much a guarantee. Sex on your wedding night, not an option. There's all kinds of stuff I'm about to complicate in your life. She isn't like, oh, man. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then she starts talking about God had remembered what he spoke to Abraham. In that moment when she's thinking about her marriage and her pregnancy, her thought goes to, you talked about this with Abraham, and this is for the generations to come. I'm on board. I want to be a part of it. I get to be a part of the great story that God is writing? Yes. 
I mean, can you imagine if God came to you now and said, I want you to be a part of the one cause that races into eternity. Every other business, every other widget, every other purpose will fall to the floor except the purpose of God from now into forever. And I can use your life to be a part of it. Who would say no thanks? I think all of us would say yes. And then if he's like, it might involve a donkey ride for like, man, it may be like two, two and a half days. Still on board? Yeah. It might involve having to sleep on some hay at some point to change history for all of eternity. Too much? No. No, it's worthy of my inconvenience. It's worthy of my life. He gave everything for me. I give it all back. And I don't give it back as a martyr and a victim. I give it all back with a thrill of hope. My God has moved all of history and he is writing a story. And I don't get to know all the specifics, but I get to know him. And he just might use me today in the life of my coworker, in the life of my family. And I don't know how he's moving all the pieces on the board, but I know that he is. And I know his purposes are good. So I trust him. I trust him. The God who sent his son is going to send me and I will go where he sends me and I'll be blessed in the doing. And all nations of the earth just might get blessed when a group of people say yes. Yes to God's purposes. Yes to his plans. Yes to the person of Jesus for his glory and our good. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.